Welcome to A Thing of Beauty. I'm your host, Claire Repschult, a senior in the College of Arts and Sciences at Indiana University studying English and History. This podcast is part of Themester, a themed semester brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences. This fall, we are exploring beauty as a core component of human experience. In each episode, we'll invite faculty to share an object of beauty with us. So let's meet our guest. Welcome to A Thing of Beauty. I'm Claire Repschel, and today I'm here with Professor Eric Sandweiss, who is a professor and chair in the history department. Uh, Professor Sandweiss, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And what is the object you have chosen today for our listeners? Well, I couldn't bring it in with me exactly, so (laughs) we'll have to use our mind's eye to picture the home of T.C. Steele, the Indiana-born artist uh, who built and lived in Uh, the house that he called the House of the Singing Winds from the time that he built it uh, outside of Belmont, Indiana, between Bloomington and Nashville in 1907 until uh, his death in 1926. His wife, Selma, continued to live in House of the Singing Winds until she passed on uh, a couple of decades later. She then dedicated it uh, and the land around it to the state of Indiana, and it's currently uh, run as a site of the Indiana State Museum and is open to the public. It's only about 10 miles outside of Bloomington, I think, right? Yeah, it's it's a 15, 20-minute drive, depending on where you're coming from. Could you describe the House of the Singing Winds for me? Sure. Uh Part of the description involves getting there, and that involves uh, driving up a winding small road uh, in Brown County, Indiana, through the hills and the forests, and then arriving at this hilltop, this suddenly cleared hilltop that's surrounded by beautiful gardens and flowers and flowering plants, and seeing in front of you a very uh, simple but striking wood frame building with a pyramidal roof, screen porches around the sides and a couple of steps leading up to it. That is this very small country home. So you walk up uh, the steps uh, into this house. You're uh, greeted by a big living room that's got beautiful rugs on the floor and original art on the wall, craftsman um, uh, objet d'art on the tables and so on. And there's this uh, mantle fireplace uh, in the center of the room with the mantle over it uh, in which is inscribed in kind of craftsman uh, type lettering uh, the phrase, every morning I take off my hat to the beauty of the world. And so you realize you are in a space that is devoted to and is about beauty and the beautiful, but it's a very practical space too. So as you uh, leave the main living area, which is also originally a a working painting studio. You arrive at uh, a very simple kitchen, uh, small bedrooms, sleeping porches, um, washroom. In other words, you're really in a in a country cabin, uh, <laughs> and yet it's one that has uh, a unique spirit and flavor to it that you can't mistake except to know that you haven't seen anything like it before. It's a place that clearly has been inhabited and has been inhabited well. That is, it uh, reflects a kind of a sense of love and devotion from the people who built it and then lived in it. And there's a kind of an integral relationship between the not only the site and the structure, right, the way it is 
built atop this hill in a way that just feels like it's natural and belongs, but also between the structure and the objects inside it. You know, the, the fireplace, which I'll talk about in a minute, the furnishings, the art that's on the wall. It all feels like uh, a very intended and intentional kind of landscape, but an unpretentious one. And then finally, you can only imagine a third relationship between the objects and the people uh, who used them and collected them. And getting some sense of that kind of spark of life, even though both uh, T.C. Steele and his wife Selma are long gone, getting still a sense of them uh, walking around in the rooms there, uh, using the pots and pans or, or adjusting the art on the walls is part of uh, what I would argue is the beauty of this uh, very unpretentious uh, but special site. And when was the first time that you saw it? Do you remember? I remember seeing uh, House of the Singing Winds for the first time uh, when I moved with my family to uh, Indiana. And we would go out there with our kids on spring and summer days uh, just to enjoy a walk in the woods, the tour of the house, uh, or for the kids, a you know, watermelon seed spitting contest outside or something like that. So there were many levels at which one can appreciate the house and I suppose the the fact of its beauty which doesn't necessarily call attention to itself in the way uh, of a big architectural landmark like uh, the IU Art Museum or something uh, its beauty is something that uh, only sinks in over time you're mostly aware of it as a wonderful site and a pleasant place to visit now, you mentioned that for you, it's really connected to paintings that you've seen. The house, when you see it, brings out the T.C. Steele work you've encountered. So are is that really present? Are there specific paintings, like paintings in the IU Art Collection or paintings in the Indiana Museum of Art that you've seen? Or is it something separate? Yeah, you'll find uh, because it, it was he was a, a plein air painter, at least at that point in his life, that is, he liked to set up outside and do landscape views uh, and that's where he was spending much of his time uh, for several decades after building and moving into the house you will find these uh, paintings uh, walking through the, the halls of the IMU uh, in uh, depending on when they're up in in the galleries of the IU Art Museum uh, uh, in books about T.C. Steele uh, Indiana State Museum has a collection. So it's not, you don't have to go too far <laughs> in, in South Central Indiana to find uh, a painting that actually shows you the House of the Singing Winds or the, the drive leading up to it or the view out over the hills uh, from it. Then the house is something that is not only available at that site, but kind of all around us. So Yeah, I guess you could say there's a kind of a, a presence to it in the same way that when you see a celebrity unexpectedly uh, at a restaurant or on the street, there's a presence there, and it's it's aided by the fact that you're not just seeing the kind of the, the incarnation, the, the the flesh and blood, but you're aware of all those other images that you carry with you of that person or of that place. So I think that's part of uh, what's great about the House of the Singing Winds, but I certainly wouldn't say it's all that's great about it. And I certainly wouldn't say that unless you've studied the art, you can't appreciate the house. And that's one of the things that made me bring it to you now. It doesn't call itself out as, as an object for your attention. It really does feel, as I uh, mentioned, like a natural and a kind of a naturally inhabited 
uh, building, which I think, and we can talk about architecture more generally in a moment, but I think that's an important criterion for beauty in architecture. Not that it was intended to impress or that it requires study or preparation to understand, but simply that it seems to draw itself naturally out of the relationships between a site, a structure, and the humans who use it. Then when you see an object of beauty like the House of the Singing Winds, are you seeing the people that put it together? And is that, in this case, the artist and his wife? Are you seeing builders? You described a lot of the environment, but is there also that anthropological component that comes alive when you see it? Yeah, that's a good, uh, a leading but but good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you've you've captured it better than I could. I would say that in any object, and I say this as a, as a museum person and not just as an architecture person, in any object there's a kind of uh, a relationship. There's a relationship between, that comes together for a moment in that, that, uh, that specific material thing. It's the relationship between the people who built it, who created it, who uh, crafted it, who intended it to be one thing or another, and the thing itself its materials, its structure, its life over time, its wear and tear, uh, and all the rest. And then uh, finally, the people who are encountering it at some other time, whether it's you and me thinking historically, or somebody who's about to bulldoze it, or somebody <laughs> who's there as a, as a tourist visiting. There's all of those uh, people are coming together in a sense, they're being revived in a way, living and dead uh, alike are being uh, revived and encountering one another within the space of that building, if we're talking about architecture, or around the space of that object, if we're talking about all different kinds of artifacts. So for me, it's very much a social relationship over time that wouldn't be possible without this thing, this material object. And when you think about the thing, are you thinking about the house ex specifically, or is it, as you were saying, a conjunction of many different peoples and times? Is it also a conjunction of the architecture and the landscape? Yeah, the great thing about the house is that it is not, um, in contrast to, to many of the buildings that were uh, kind of prompted or, or coached to think about as beautiful or as important, it is not something that sets out to call attention to itself. So it really is about the relationship, I think, uh, just as it was for, for the steels, the relationship between the structure, which is just a roof over your head, ultimately, and walls to keep out rain and animals. Um, it's really the relationship between that structure and this broader site. Not only what you can see there from the hill, which is, you know, which is beautiful in itself, but thinking about the site more generally, historically for me is important. Thinking about the development of Southern Indiana as a cultural landscape in its own right. Thinking about the poverty of Brown County, which then uh, created its own kind of draw for the artists who gathered there at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, thinking about things that are precious uh, and and lost in uh, American life, but in terms of its beauty, it really isn't necessarily about the the quality of its finishing or the you know the formal uh, characteristics that it uh, brings in a, in the way that uh, a trained 
architect might uh, anticipate. It really is about uh, the relationship of people across time and of a building to its larger landscape. So I think we're beginning to see that your understanding of beauty in the case of this house has a lot to do with its capsule of time and place. But what is your definition of beauty more broadly? So how does this house fit into your broader understanding of beauty in your discipline? Kind of a general sense of what you think is beautiful. It's a good question, and it's one that that Steele himself was clearly thinking about. And one of the things that I should mention that made this a relevant object for me to bring to the table today is the fact that beauty itself is is a word that Steele is using and he's using it in relation to the house. So uh, when we come inside, as I mentioned, there's a fireplace, which is wonderful in its own right, but over the stone mantle or chiseled into the stone mantle is this phrase, every morning I take off my hat to the beauty of the world. Mm. And it was a quote from a... Um, kind of a book of a popular verse, uh, a Scottish uh, poet that Selma Steele had uh, on her um, on her bookshelves. And it's, so it's interesting that, that clearly the, the Steeles are thinking about beauty as a kind of a central guiding principle for themselves. And, and incidentally, years later, when Steele dies uh, on his gravestone, which is also on the hillside there, uh, is the uh, epitaph, beauty outlives everything. So beauty is, is there, and in a sense, they're kind of raising for us the question that you just did. How did they define it, and how do we define it? My own definition is probably not conditioned by um, a particular kind of aesthetic quality. You know, for centuries, people have tried to define beauty as a certain level of balance or imbalance or whatever. To me, it's uh, something that's much more uh, ephemeral, hard to define. And um, what should I say? It's something, beauty is something that comes out of imperfections. To me, it's something that is so striking that it would take my breath away, but then I would get my breath back. So in that (laughs) moment, there would be a sense of revelation about impermanence, maybe about death, maybe about suffering, and then some kind of measure of being rescued from it. So uh, a beautiful person or a beautiful object to me has something uh, wrong with it, as well as many things right about it. Uh, it has some sense of humility, of, of modesty about its own um, place in the world. And yet at the same time, there's something that's powerful enough in it that it would remind me or a viewer, I guess more generally, of the impermanence and the transience of life. Like there is that moment where, as you, as when you say your something takes your breath away, that means you're not breathing. <laughs> that means yeah. if you kept doing that, you would die. But in fact, uh, that taking your breath away is just a, a a precursor to getting it back again, to appreciating and seeing and realizing once more uh, what it is to be alive. And to me, that uh, is some way of getting around or uh, approaching the question of what is beauty. So it's something like a pause that makes you think about where you are in that moment or it makes you think about, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in this pause that you mentioned between when you encounter something beautiful and when you realize what you've just encountered. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to avoid going back to the uh, commercial for 7-Up uh, Soda when I was a kid. The pause <laughs> that refreshes. Or was that a different soda? In any case, <laughs> it uh, is not exactly something that takes your breath away. But um, I think the pause is, is a moment at which, as I said, you become aware of mortality, but also become aware of your connection to other uh, things and people. Uh, if you're attracted to a person whom you see but you don't even know, there's some uh, element in that pause of a connection. This is somebody who would understand me or whom I would like to understand. If you're attracted to a place, a site that you suddenly see, or a, a painting or a, a work of uh, self-conscious art that you see, there's something in that pause uh, that, again, I think... Uh, reverberates, that it creates a connection between you and, as I said before, both the object and the person behind that object or persons, whoever it was that put it there in the first place, uh, that gives you some sense of the kind of connectedness of life, which is not a sense we can, unless we are artists ourselves, it's not a sense we can afford to keep going in our heads 24 hours a day. You get back into your kind of um, uh, selfish or self-centered world where you're getting work done and you're withdrawing from the world. But in that moment, you're reminded that there are those connections everywhere and that there's that sense of uh, empathy and mutual need that we all have both with one another and with the places that we inhabit. It sounds a lot like love, your definition of being. Yeah, I think in, in some ways I'm in danger of... Uh, of merging the two, and obviously there's a there's a relationship between them. I suppose we love what is uh, beautiful, and what uh, what we find beautiful is something we love. So, was your understanding of beauty ever different? Like, has it changed over time, or has it always kind of been something that you've just come to understand better as you learn more? I think I probably articulate it differently over time, and I think there's a natural way in which aging over time changes our perspective, not just on beauty, but on everything, uh, particularly as historians, as you know, intervals of time become uh, more internalized and less abstracted to us. So in that sense, I'm sure that it has changed, but in another sense, uh, to borrow from Stephen Sondheim, we always are what we always were. And my, my impression, if I think back on things that I considered beautiful or experiences that I uh, might assign that word to, is that I was probably pretty much in my track from very early on in my life. Why that would be so or, or uh, what's responsible for it would be somebody else's uh, guess to make, not my own. But I do think that I haven't... Um, changed in the kind of fundamental interest that I have in the kinds of lived experiences and interactions of people and spaces over time that I've been articulating to you today. I'm just probably explaining it differently and probably less comprehensively now than I might have when I was younger. Then your experience of beauty as isolated from the T.C. Steel House, are there other times when it comes out like moments when you've been surprised, when it comes upon you kind of unconsciously, you realize that it's happening or? I think, you know, again, beauty is, is a, a broad concept and that's what you're exploring this term. And so uh, there's ways in which when I think about how to answer your question, I'm probably veering into love or um, 
emotional responses. But sure, I mean, I think the thing that I'm describing is an emotion that uh, I recognize from movies that I saw as early as when I was a kid. You know, why did I cry at movies, you know, even at Mary Poppins? Um, (laughs) It's hard to say, but I think beauty was some piece of that. It was something that I encountered in uh, literature. And for some reason, for me, uh, as a young person, when I think you're, you're most susceptible and open to the beautiful in the literature of uh, kind of mid-20th century uh, hard-boiled novelists like uh, Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain, who, whose books wouldn't be described as beautiful, but uh, for me, they awakened some kind of awareness that I would put in that category. Uh, beauty was probably present in music, the music of of my childhood that I continue to go back to, in particular um, rock and roll and popular music from uh, the early to mid 60s at a moment when I think there was a kind of an incredible flowering uh, and and cross pollination to, to continue the botanical image of styles and singers and musicians uh, that's never been matched since. And, and so I think that had an impact on me. And then there's uh, beauty in places. Again, places that I remember as a kid when I was most impressionable. I'm thinking about the sight out the airplane window the first time that I flew in a plane into New York City and just seeing that uh, skyline for the first time was uh, a thing of beauty. Or more recently in my life, uh, a, a very rainy, windswept day on a, on a public bus in Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil, riding along the coast uh, through uh, favelas and shanty towns, uh, which had, a, a, to uh, rephrase that, that uh, image of Ireland, a kind of a terrible beauty to it. So these are all uh, experiences that I guess I would gauge by how they make me feel and that I might uh, typify as being beautiful, even though they're in all of these different media, things that I read, things that I see, things that I, uh, places that I visit, all of these different media I think are capable of showing us something beautiful and of awakening that kind of sense that I've described in myself. So this is kind of a cheesy question, but would you say you're like a believer in beauty? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, what it is that I believe in. And those those moments are kind of moments of doubt, right? But I'd certainly believe in those moments. And so then what would you say to history students or non-history students who are hearing this podcast and thinking about beauty how, how should they continue going about incorporating it into their work or their thoughts? What would your suggestion be? Uh, my suggestion would be to live life and live it in your way because beauty is, is only real insofar as you experience it as such. And so much of my life has been trying to unlearn what my own professors taught me about uh, what's supposed to be beautiful, what's supposed to be important. Uh, and trying to remind myself of what I found uh, along the way that worked for me. So, um, kids, all that stuff you're learning in class, no, go ahead and learn it. Uh, And chances are that you'll draw from it as well. But make sure that uh, along the way, you're looking for your own responses and your own reactions to uh, the works of the women and men who came before you. And finding in even the most ordinary objects, the stuff that doesn't get uh, put on your uh, midterm exam, 
even in the most ordinary objects, some sense of that beauty of the human experience that uh, is involved in doing one's best, sometimes uh, falling short, but leaving it behind for others uh, to come after. Well, it sounds like Professor Sandweiss's beauty tip is find your own experience in the world that you feel is beautiful and don't listen to what any professorial types try to tell you. Is that true? Yeah, that's (laughs) sort of like saying uh, uh, the following statement is a lie. Uh, So with that contradiction, maybe we have uh, left it here. The professor tells you not to listen to the professor. Well, thank you very much. This has been A Thing of Beauty, and I'm Claire Repschel. Go find something beautiful this week.